Good Saturday morning to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's me, Kirk Monroe, um, talking to you all um, on a nice uh, Saturday morning, and uh, we are now in Season 4. And what are we going to be talking about in this season? Well, I know I said last night to all of you out there that my primary focus was on colonial history, and it still is, but I thought for this season, why not throw a little trickery in there and do something that's uh, outside of the colonial era. We're going to be going into the 20th century for this podcast season, and we're going to be talking about a ship. And I know some of you are thinking, why a ship? Well, this is no ordinary ship that I'm going to be talking about for this uh, podcast. It has to do with a book titled Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Michael Schumacher, who is a native of the Great Lakes region, and he has written um, nearly um, 25 documentaries on Great Lakes shipwrecks and lighthouses. Well, as we all know, the Great Lakes account for almost 20% or more of all the world's uh, freshwater supply. And I've been to three of the five Great Lakes, or I should say my wife and I have been. We've, been. we've seen Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, and Ontario. Hopefully one day we'll get to see Superior and Huron. But um, why do I find this uh, topic about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, to be of importance? Well, the Edmund Fitzgerald was um, built uh, well before I was born. Um, she was built, she was first... Um, Construction first began on this ship in 1957, and it took only about 10 months for the ship to be built. And I'll get more into that um, here in a little bit, but um, nonetheless, for whom is the Edmund Fitzgerald named after? He's got to be named after somebody by the name of Edmund Fitzgerald, correct? I mean, you just don't name a ship for someone who doesn't exist, but um, Mr. Edmund Fitzgerald was the president and head chairman of the board for Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it turns out that um, Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance was the first insurance company, or should I say first American life insurance company, to go about investing in ships. Of course, when we think of insurance companies, we think of Companies that are dealing with um, what we call it, uh, what do you call it, covering for expenses that involve car accidents, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, home policy um, matters. We would never think of an insurance company. It's easy to assume that an insurance company would not want to be involved with a um, a ship um, with the shipbuilding industry. But it turns out that hey, like cars, planes, and trains. Ships have to have insurance as well, too, so why not um, invest um, in the uh, shipping industry in terms of, um, in terms of ships uh, transporting goods from point A to point B? But Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance was known for heavily investing in the iron and mineral industries on a large-scale basis. So if you already are heavily involved with um, natural resources, then why not uh, pursue um, investing in uh, in ships as a whole? So 
is it safe to say that the Fitzgerald family, for whom this ship is named after, was heavily involved in the maritime industry? That's an easy answer, yes. Mr. Edmund Fitzgerald's grandfather had been a lake captain, whereas his own father had owned the Milwaukee Dry Dock Company, which built and repaired ships. Well, if you have a, a strong family history of being involved in this industry, then it will pay off not just for the short term, but in the long term as well. And did Northwestern Mutual have an established... Let me ask you this. Um, did Northwestern Mutual have an established procedure in play for the maritime business affairs? Uh, that answer is yes. The insurance company purchased ships for operation by other companies. So, this, so Northwestern Mutual was... Um, was wanting to make long-term investments with ships, and so they signed a 25-year contract with a corporation known as Ogilvy Norton Corporation to operate this vessel. So if the ship is officially done with being built in 1958, the contract itself with the ship given for 25 years would have lasted into the early 1980s. So Ogilvy Norton went about making the Edmund Fitzgerald its head flagship vessel. And what is a flagship vessel? Well, it's often referred to as the lead ship, being the first, the largest, the fastest, or just simply the best known. So the Fitzgerald went on to become the flagship vessel for Ogilvy Norton's Columbia Transportation Fleet Group. So... Before I get into more information about um, what we're going to be talking about for this season, um, most of us already would know, or I should say a vast majority of us know, that um, shipping has been prevalent on the Great Lakes for years. I mean, it's been prevalent um, even before the 20th century started. Even uh, it, the, Most of the history for shipping in the Great Lakes, I would say, really takes off in the 19th century. Because prior to the 19th century, well, I should say this, even after the French and Indian War from 1756 to 1763, the British are in control of the Great Lakes. And that obviously causes problems for the Americans, or for the colonists, I should say. So obviously there are wars, not just the American Revolution, that uh, where we're obtaining our freedom and our independence from England, but when the Treaty of Paris is signed in 1783, we get back um, the territory, or not, should I say territory, but um, ownership of uh, the Great Lakes, but we're still in conflict with England. It takes another war, being from the previous season that I talked about from through the perilous fight about the War of 1812 to fully... Um, be able to gain um, proper respect on not just on the high seas, but even on the Great Lakes for shipping. So the Great Lakes are a vital uh, linkage route system for goods to move, not just from Lake Superior to Huron, but to go from water to mainland. And these freighters are transporting natural resources. Now, early on, the great ships on the Great Lakes did transport people or to get around from point A to point B, and they still do. But 
shipping itself in terms of the business side has really been what's taken over. So, as I said earlier, I'll say this again, uh, it took less than a year for this uh, ship to have been built. It was built by Great Lakes Engineering Works of River Rogue, Michigan. Now, the Fitzgerald is just no ordinary ship. She is referred to as a laker. Of course, when I, for many of years, when, when I heard of Laker, <laughs> I often thought of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team, but I'll just tell you this right now. Um, I don't, I, I could be wrong, but uh, what I do know about Laker in terms of maritime um, history is that a Laker is a bulk carrier vessel. And as I mentioned earlier, these uh, vessels navigate throughout all five of the Great Lakes. They are known for transporting natural resources like iron ore to limestone to grain, coal, salt, all these natural resources coming from the mines and fields of the upper Great Lakes like Superior and Huron and Michigan to areas east like Cleveland, Ohio, Chicago, Illinois, um, South Bend, Indiana, uh, Detroit, Michigan that are home to industrial hub facility centers. So think about it. It's one thing to be transporting the stuff by water, but you've got to find a way to get it to land. And once you get it to land, then the goods can, you know, move by uh, rail or they can move, you know, by a truck, depending on how it's, um, how it's being packaged and all that and uh, how it goes about being transported. So in 1957, does anybody want to take a guess at how much it, this ship is going to, um, how much it would cost to build a ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald? It cost $7 million in 1957. That's a lot of money. But to build the ship in today's modern era, 21st century, it would be the equivalent of about $48.8 or $49 million or almost $50 million. So that's a huge uh, increase. Of course, as that old saying goes, everything's relevant to the times in which um, a, one generation lived in from a future generation. What I find interesting about the Fitzgerald on the day she was officially launched, which was June 7th of 1958, hundreds and hundreds of people came to see um, this ship being launched. I mean, when a ship gets launched... It's a big deal because it's the new, it's the, for one, it's the talk of town, and two, perhaps when a ship gets launched, there some people will speculate and say, hey, is this ship going to be different from other ships? What advantages will this ship have over, uh, over this other ship? So here are some um, interesting things about the day that the Fitzgerald was officially launched. For starters, the event itself was surrounded by, by more than one mishap. Mr. Edmund Fitzgerald's wife tried on three attempts to smash the champagne bottle over the bow. She finally got it on the third try. It had nothing to do with um, it had nothing to do with not being able to aim properly. It it, it was just. You know, when you uh, christen a ship, nine times out of ten, you're going to be able to uh, strike the bow properly on that first try. But 
For some reason, Mrs. Fitzgerald herself, it took her three tries just to smash the champagne bottle over the bow. And I don't know how what this term really means, but from what I uh, noted, it, the ship had what was called a sideways launch. Of course, when you think of sideways, we think of crooked. So upon her sideways launch, the ship created a large wave. And it was so big that the wave went about drenching spectators. So it's one thing to be up close to watch this ship being launched. But because of the way she gets launched into the water and the wave that comes about, you never know what to expect when you're uh, standing, you know, too close. And to, on a sad note on that day, the wave that was so big that uh, drenched so many people, it was so overwhelming to where one man died of a heart attack that day. So you almost have to wonder, is it possible that this ship, being 729 feet long, is somehow going to be cursed? We would hope not, but you just wonder. Well, I think the bigger question now is, why is the Edmund Fitzgerald, such a unique historic icon in the annals of maritime history. Well, there are a lot of ships, for starters, that have um, become unique icons in maritime history. I mean, you can think of Titanic, you can think of Lusitania, you can think of um, the Andrea, um, I'm trying to think, Andrea Doria, I want to say it was. I mean, there are uh, like the, the, the QE2 ships, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of ships out there that had um, such unique prominence that they are definitely, rightfully so, belong in the annals of maritime history. But as for the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, she, is, she has many unique nicknames. For, as for one of them, she is referred to as the Titanic of the Great Lakes, given that she is 725. 729 feet long, and for a period of time was the longest ship on the Great Lakes. She had earned a title known as the Queen of the Lakes. So how can this ship be considered the Titanic of the Great Lakes when she's not even a luxury ship liner? In other words, she's not, she's not a what we might call in today's time a Royal Caribbean cruise line ship. Uh, how can she be considered to be anything equivalent to Titanic. Well, even though she was an iron ore freighter, her interior was luxurious just like Titanic. Edmund Fitzgerald had furnishings which ranged from deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge, having two guest staterooms for passengers, a large galley, and a fully stocked pantry which supplied meals for two dining rooms. In the interior of its bridge, and of course we're not talking a bridge where, you know, cars go by and all that, but in this case a, the bridge of a ship being the platform where the, the crew itself can operate from in terms of, a, you know, steering the ship uh, with its steering um, wheel and other, um, what do you call it, um, 
devices for going about communicating to the crew and to um, say the Coast Guard. It's a top of the, they have top of the line nautical equipment. So basically, to put it in a nutshell, I don't see how you could say the opposite and say the ship this ship is not the the Titanic of the Great Lakes. For, as a matter of fact, she is, and and in its day, people would be driving along various bridges. And sometimes they would even pull over on the side of the road just to get out of their car to watch the Edmund Fitzgerald go by. I'll tell you this right now. This was the ship that many uh, crew and captains and what do you, and uh, people in general who devoted their lives to the maritime industry in the shipping world, they wanted to be on this ship. This was the ship that uh, was made for dreams. Same way with Titanic. As for other nicknames of the Edmund Fitz, that the Edmund Fitzgerald got, she was often referred to as the Fitz, the pride of the American side, the mighty Fitz, the big Fitz, to the Toledo Express. How many years was she in existence? Well, I could tell you this. She was in existence much longer than the Titanic was. The ship was in existence for 17 years, from June of 1958 to November 10, 1975, the night she vanished without sight. The Edmund Fitzgerald was a record-setting workhorse, which often resulted in beating her own milestones. So in other words, she could set one record at, one, at any given moment of time, but then topple that previous record on any other... Um, occasion down the road. For 17 years, the ship itself transported, um, she, given she was an iron ore freighter, but she transported um, taconite. And I'm going to discuss that in another podcast, but that was her uh, most common natural resource to be shipping was taconite. And the Fitzgerald set seasonal haul records six different times. I think it's fair to say that the Fitzgerald did not miss out on anything when it came to being out on the Great Lakes, most notably Superior. And uh, in other podcasts, uh, sessions regarding the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, we will, um, I will definitely be talking about, you know, what caused this ship to sink or, you know, what theories have been proposed. But what I do know is that when the Fitzgerald sank on November 10th, 1975, her sinking became the most famous freshwater shipwreck. It still remains one of the greatest mysteries in Great Lakes history. And the ship's sinking had garnered national attention. Well, it's one thing for a ship to sink. I'll tell you all this right now. When a ship sinks, or when a ship is in the process of sinking, it would be easy to assume that that the crew, the captain and his crew, can um, can issue a mayday order, can issue uh, warnings for the rest of the crew um, to get ready to abandon ship. But there are also uh, times in history when a ship does sink that none of that can unfortunately is not able to take place. 
because sometimes shipwrecks just happen out of nowhere without any warning to where the inevitable happens so quickly that it only takes less than 10 to, it might take no more than 10 to 15 minutes before the ship actually sinks. So to sum it up here, no mayday was transmitted, no lifeboats were ever launched, the ship plunged to the bottom of Lake Superior. I can tell you this right now, the ship sits 530 feet below the surface of Lake Superior. That doesn't seem that big, but when you consider that Lake Superior is the biggest of all the five Great Lakes, you could fit the other four, Huron, Michigan, Erie, and Ontario, into Superior. That should tell you right there just how deep her waters are. How many men were on the Edmund Fitzgerald the night of November, the night of November 10th, 1975? I will tell you this, uh, it was fewer than 50. The number is 29. All 29 men lost their lives, no survivors. There were countless family, family members left to wonder how the inevitable could have actually happened. And, like the Titanic, the Edmund Fitzgerald herself was also considered unsinkable. In 1975, the ship was less than 20 years old. She had a state-of-the-art she had state-of-the-art technology, an excellent crew, but when it disappeared out of the radar sight, there was nothing but pure disbelief. There have been multiple investigations conducted, especially after the Fitzgerald sinking, including countless theories proposed on why the uh, on how and why this incident happened and and as i said um i'll say this here uh in later podcast sessions i will uh discuss uh some of the uh investigation findings as well as theories that were proposed as to why uh the ship did sink but just so that you all know there have never been any final conclusions as to what really caused the Edmund Fitzgerald to sink. Whereas the Titanic has had multiple expeditions to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean, the Edmund Fitzgerald has had the opposite in, in Lake Superior, and perhaps for the better. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of good reasons that I've come up with. I did uh, some uh, research, and a fellow who led an expedition back in 1995 to the Edmund Fitzgerald around her 20th anniversary of the sinking, his, his name is Fred Shannon. He is a well-known Great Lakes dive explorer who has um, done other expeditions, I'm going to assume, with other uh, ships that have sank in other Great Lakes and, and the other four Great Lakes. When he led this expedition, he discovered a body of one of the uh, men who lost their lives during the excursion. And he did address this um, to people above him. When family members of, or I should say the wid widows and uh, sons and daughters 
and other relatives who had lost loved ones on that night, in, back in 1975, the surviving family members of the deceased uh, went about launching a campaign to formally declare the Edmund Fitzgerald an official grave site, prohibiting all future explorations. So it's so when we think back on it now, it's been 25 years since the last time an, ex, an expedition to to see the ship took place, but there won't be any other ones. And I don't find that wrong at all. And I will talk more about that in another podcast session. But what I can tell you is this, is that all 29 of those men who died that fateful night deserve to rest in peace. And even um, the dive explorers who went down back in 1995 agreed as well. And I will tell you this right now, and more will be shared later on, less than five artifacts from the Edmund Fitzgerald are available to see in person. And the artifacts that were found, or not so much were found, have significant sentimental value. And one of those artifacts did raise some controversy, but in the end, um, I personally believed that it was probably the right thing to do in terms of keeping all 29 men's spirit alive. But there again, that will be discussed in a later podcast. But I can tell you this. I remember when the Titanic was first uh, discovered by Dr. Uh, Robert Ballard. And what I do know is this. There have been several expeditions after what Dr. Ballard had done in 1986. But as much as I appreciate history and, and, and enjoy learning about it, I've had a lot of mixed feelings over the years about what other expeditions after Robert Ballard's have done with the Titanic. I could tell you this, there is a museum in, um, in the Smoky Mountains called the, the Titanic Museum. I've never been there before. I think it would be worth going and seeing artifacts that are on display. But what I find disturbing is that these other expeditions felt it was necessary to take up artifacts left and right, and basically what you call looting from underwater, being um, grave robbers, and at the time that all of this was going on, there were still survivors of the Titanic. As a matter of fact, one lady, um, her name was Ava Hart, and uh, from a book I read uh, that was written by Dr. Ballard, many years back, she had said that whatever plates were taken up, for all I know, that could have been the last meal that my family and I had on the ship. Why would you do something like that? Why would you make us, make us survivors want to relive something that was so painful? In other words, it's best to leave artifacts where they are. If they are underground in the water, and in this case with the Titanic, two and a half miles um, below the surface of the North Atlantic Ocean, it would just be best to leave it there. But I only speak for myself. As for the Edmund Fitzgerald, I think it was very smart that 
no artifacts were taken from the ship, in large part because that's not what the 29 men would have wanted. The would have wanted explorers going down there to have done. And uh, I will talk more in another podcast down the road about how the ship, how the ship is positioned in Lake Superior, because I can tell you this right now: the ship is not standing in one piece. It's um, it's split into two pieces, like Titanic did. But nonetheless, it is good to know that um, that Lake that the Edmund Fitzgerald did not have as many expeditions as Titanic. Not that there's nothing wrong with expeditions, but Dr. Ballard's expedition was meant to, um, his expedition was not meant to profit. His was to tell the story. All these other expeditions that went down there after him, unfortunately, were meant to profit. So you do have to ask yourself, hey, it's one thing to um, find a ship that sunk years ago. It's another thing to say, hey... Or another thing to go about doing, in some cases, the unthinkable by taking stuff up that's not even yours to begin with. Lastly, um, here's a question that probably that will come into play, but I'll just mention it now. Did the weather, or rather Mother Nature, play a part in the disappearance of the Edmund Fitzgerald? The answer is yes. Prior to November 10th, the night the ship went out of sight, there were two low-pressure weather systems developing. They were developing as early as November 8th of 1975. And the weather system, one of these weather system patterns, would impact the Edmund Fitzgerald. The one that did impact her originated in Alberta, Canada, which is in western Canada. And it was a low pressure system that uh, started moving eastward across southern Canada into the northern third of the U.S., um, into the northern third of the United States. This weather system brought cold Arctic air, which would eventually set off uh, the potential for snow in the north-central region of the United States. But come the day after, November 9th, the National Weather Service forecasts a storm that was considered to be typical for this time um, that would impact the central states and the upper Great Lakes, being superior as one of those upper Great Lakes. The storm would move north and east at a very, very fast pace, and it would pass over Lake Superior. As for the Canadian system storm, it would continue to bring more cold air inward from Canada, and this does have the National Weather Service very worried because it's not just so much that people in the National Weather Service are worried about what's going to happen, but they're worried about a potential storm coming from the southwest. If both of these storm systems meet, there is a very, very strong likelihood that the inevitable will happen, or should I say all hell will break loose. A perfect storm. Maybe something similar to that famous uh, movie 20 years ago about the Andrea Gale that, uh, was commercial, that was a commercial fisherman's ship that was out of Gloucester, Massachusetts. Two storms collided. 
and it resulted in the loss of uh, six commercial fishermen's live, lives nearly 30 years ago. I can't, I don't know if I could say this storm from 1975 has any uh, bearings that are similar, but when two storms collide and converge upon one another, anything is possible. And when that happens, then yes, all hell can break loose, a perfect storm. So it is important to know that weather will play, it's not so much that weather will play, that weather is going to be a huge prominent factor in the disappearance to this ship. Not just to the ship, but to the ship that was, in so many people's minds and hearts, the big fits, the mighty fits, the Titanic of the Great Lakes. This was a ship that, um, that, I, that I now wonder if she hadn't sunk on that fateful night of 19, November 10th, 1975, how much longer would she have lasted? But of course, one might be left to wonder, well, if a storm didn't happen that night, could another storm have happened in another year later on down the road where she could have met the inevitable? What I will tell you all is this before I wrap up this podcast is that November has often been known as the deadliest month for Great Lakes um, shipwrecks. And a fellow by the name of Gordon Lightfoot, who is a well-known singer who is from Canada, a year after the Fitzgerald sank, wrote a song called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And in, and I will share the song with you all much later on in, 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 in a future podcast, but one of the lines to, his, to this song has to do when the gales of November came early. So in other words no matter how soon or late you are into November, when, you're, when you are a, um, a laker, moving around from point A to point B on any of the Great Lakes, you pretty much have to expect the inevitable. You have to be prepared for the unexpected because the first day you're out on the water, everything looks great, no sign of trouble, but Mother Nature has her way of stirring weather or creating weather that will either make or break your safety. Not just your safety, but the rest of the crew's safety and whether or not you come home alive. And that's what history has uh, taught us with the Great Lakes, not just in 1975, but in years past. Well, folks, I look forward to another podcast session here soon, and I hope that you all are going to find... this uh, season to be uh, worth um, learning about this uh, ship, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I have a good feeling it will be worth uh, your all's time. And what I uh, also should share here real quick is this. I had heard uh, Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, on many of occasions, but about six or seven years ago when I really started to listen to it more, I began to wonder what is this? What was this ship all about? Why is this ship of such significant importance? So that's when I started to um, do some research on this ship. And this book, The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, I read this book about two, uh, two to three years ago. So I'm glad I did. And I figured, hey, why not share this story with the, with the, 
uh, with the listeners. They might find it uh, relevant because when we think of famous shipwrecks, we're always led to believe we're we're always thinking about Titanic and Lusitania. Uh, we're, we tend to think of those uh, ships, for example, but. The Great Lakes have their own story to tell as well with uh, shipwrecks, and most notably this one, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Take care and enjoy the rest of your weekend, and I will be back on the air here soon. God bless.